Welcome back to Around the Wheel with Brett Tax. And on this episode, I have Jarrett King. Jarrett King is a writer and a engineer technologist, which to, to make it easy, he's a, a mechanical engineer. He does stuff, makes things, design things. He works for a tire company, happens to be uh, one of the tire companies that make my favorite tire, which is the original EO7. And the reason I'm bringing him on this podcast is he has a lot of information about tires and there's no reason to not get into something that is nice and controversial. So welcome to the show, Jarrett. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, this is going to be fun. All right. So let's just let's just dive right into this because I want to just hit topics that everybody's interested in. And I'm going to start right off with the big one. Let's talk about air pressure because everybody knows I am not a an air pressure fanatic. I you know, I've played a lot and experimented a lot, adding pressure, decreasing pressure, seeing if it really made a significant difference. And although I find differences on a racetrack in, in specific conditions where I'm really pushing it or on different brands or different types of tire, generally speaking, I run my street pressures off-road, on-road, touring. I really don't make a lot of adjustments. What's the What's your take on this? Oh boy, that's definitely a loaded one to start with. I guess. <laughs> um, Into I the mean, deep end. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just it's that's one of those topics. Uh, obviously, you know, we have to we always have to toe the company line and, and say that we, I start like to start this discussion by pointing out that um, very knowledgeable people design our products and and all of the companies that certify product for road use on on whether it's a motorcycle or car these are people who know what they're doing right and so when there's a suggestion as to how you would change the air pressure for uh, certain conditions i mean we could talk about that separately but i guess starting with the idea of you know why is a the tire pressure recommended it, it really comes back to very physical, very tangible things like the load that the tire carries, the speed that that tire spins at, and things like that. They're engineering principles and, and you can't negate the value of why that's important. Within the scope of what you're talking about, there's kind of the, those two different discussions. What, what is it designed for and what is the ideal condition for its use, which would be, you know, obviously if you're using a dual sport tire, it has to perform good in both environments, but also the other side of it would be what can you feel? What physically makes a difference? And, you know, from my perspective, sometimes it's interesting to observe what people think that they can feel and what they actually feel. You can prove out very quickly in blind tests how much some people, and this is, keep in mind, very, very much departed from skill level. Some people are very, very sensitive to bike setup in general, not just tire setup, air pressure. Others don't care and don't notice. And that could be someone who's a raw novice or, or one of the highest levels of, of experienced pro. So I guess the important part is to discuss what you're getting out of that change. You know, what, what is the effect of the tire pressure and what are some of the things that you might compromise if you change it is probably a better way to frame that conversation. One of the things I had to do when I was experimenting with tire pressures is to try to create, to the best of my ability, a controlled environment. And that's what most riders aren't able to do. It has to be the same tire, the same conditions, the same rider, the same speed, the same line. As soon as I start changing pace, is it the tire? Is it the suspension? Is it my impressions of it? And I did a little experiment quite a few years ago where I had a tire clinic and we would set 
air pressure. So we would ask a bunch of questions of the riders. How do they ride? How much do they weigh? What kind of bike do they have? What's their preferences on everything else? And then we would set the tires to the ideal pressure. And what we actually did was take pressures from the tires, what they were, then we would remove air, add air, but leave it at the same pressure that they rolled in at. And when they came back, they would let us know if that if that air pressure had made a difference. And it was amazing the, the vast number of riders who had commented how much better their bike performed once we had professionally adjusted their air pressure. Mm-hmm. And within that, like I said, you, you might see people who are, it, that, I think that that conversation, again, is not necessarily about so much about what the actual change is as it is about the individual. You know, you, you will see in, in that condition a wide variance in the results of what people can sense and, and I think what they would prefer. Uh, you mentioned doing it professionally, having it set up properly. I think that's probably more important than what the actual number is going to be. We just put it in their head because we set it back to the same pressure, but we were asking questions and taking air out and putting air in, but it all ended up at the same. So let me, let me throw you some water wings here because I did, I, I kind of rolled you up to the edge of the pool and then I, <laughs> I kicked you in, right? I just, because you know, why not? That that's entertainment, right? So let's, uh, on that same topic of just air pressure, let's go back to, uh, just a general sense that there's really kind of two pressures that are being put out there and put out there by manufacturers. And I know this because when I get on the websites and I put in a lot of, a lot of websites will offer you, you know, what kind of bike do you have? What tire do you have? And they'll give a recommended tire pressure. That is not the same pressure that's on the sidewall of the tire. And many riders believe that the sidewall pressure is the ideal pressure. And the sidewall pressure, you and I both know, and and those that are listening probably know, that is actually the maximum load for that tire. And we'll come back to that. But there's an ideal uh, or at least a baseline tire pressure that's put out by the companies. And then there's this maximum load pressure. How does that come into play? How are the manufacturers coming up with two different numbers, one for a recommendation and one for max load? Um, I guess the easiest way to explain that would be to consider where the information comes from. The information that you look at on the sidewall, for example, is regulatory. So that's information that's based on a rule that the government body or the certifying body creates to standardize uh, safety parameters, I guess, if we want to call it that. And those, those safety parameters need a limit or a standardized condition. So when you look at that number on the side of the uh on the side of the sidewall of the tire, you're going to see that number that is a predefined maximum, I guess would be a good way to say that, or uh, again, a standardized condition. When they recommend tire pressures, those recommended tire pressures are in specific conditions and those specific conditions can change wildly. You mentioned the bike itself, the weight of the rider, the weight of the gear, is it laden or unladen speeds? You can get away with a pretty wide range of settings on on not just tires, but suspension settings and other things based on the parameters of the ride. So one thing that we see in adventure bike riding is a dramatic difference in, let's use a perfect example here, a single cylinder dual sport bike versus a fully laden, like a GS 1200 or something, you know, a big, a big machine with all of the luggage and all of the farkles on it, right? The difference between those two motorcycles is dramatic, both in load and also riding condition. You're not going to go down a single track trail on a 
dual sport 500 and go bashing through the rocks the same way that you would go cruising down the road on the GS. So I guess that's really what the difference is, is the regulatory base gives you that standardized condition. And then these recommended pressures are things that they've established in terms of range of operation in actual conditions or very specific. Okay. So I, there's only uh, one more question. I'm, I'm going to let you off the hook for, for tire pressure. And this takes us back for a bit. Paul and I were out doing some riding and we had a, a tire with us that we were trying out and testing. And, you know, when we try new products, we we like to share what we find and people are usually very curious about that. And he had chose to run the tire pressure above the sidewall maximum load pressure. And he had done some research before and actually called the company ahead of time to go, is this, is this acceptable? Can I do this? Is there any problem with it? Because we don't like to make recommendations that may possibly cause harm to riders. We need to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. And and he certainly caught a lot of backlash because during the video review of this particular tire, he mentioned the tire pressure. And there were a lot of people who keyed in to go, well, that's dangerous. That's a mistake. That's above the recommended pressure. That tire is going to blow up on you. You know, again, you mentioned this is a regulatory tire. And the way I understand it is that sidewall, there has to be a constant. If we're going to have a max load, you have to have something to compare with. So the my understanding is the manufacturer goes, this is the pressure at this load that meets this standard. Done. And then as we just discussed, you can have different pressures for different performance benefits or, or aspects. Was it just that manufacturer? Is it is that a common thing to allow overinflation? We'll just call it overinflation. Is that something that we should be concerned about, irregardless of the performance characteristics, just from the safety standpoint of the tire? I guess this is probably that spot where I have to toe the company line a little bit and say that that situation was probably fairly unique. It's very rare where you would say that that would be an ideal situation. But again, in terms of setup, what you're talking about and then the situation you're describing specifically is conditions that are relative to that exact environment and that exact condition. You will probably hear unilaterally from all the manufacturers that that's not recommended. And then you get into a debate about the conditions themselves. Um, so I can't speak, I guess, directly to that situation, but I'd say that must have been a, a fairly unique scenario. And again, because it's a liability issue, the manufacturer is never going to recommend anything outside of what they deem appropriate. And then in that condition, it sounds like that's a, a very specific thing. So yeah, I got to tell the company line on that one. The debate of performance and improvement or whether that was an ideal pressure or not was less of a concern because for us, we just wanted to be able to experiment, yep. we put more in, take some out. What's the range that we can go that's safe, that we're not going to have a problem? Let me jump on that one from a little bit different angle. And I guess the, the big thing here is there is a significant safety factor built into every aspect of an engineered product that rolls down a highway. It doesn't matter what it is. Virtually every part or component of, especially something like a tire, is going to be overbuilt. So the likelihood, the actual likelihood of that being dangerous is very, very low. I can say that. I can't speak to that. But by the same token, I could I could tell you that there, there's no regulatory source that deems the lowest possible pressure as being dangerous, even though it's widely accepted and noted both legally and just from the common sense perspective that having a very, very low tire pressure going down the road is dangerous. I think that's 
widely accepted as common knowledge, but there is no base for what is too low of a pressure. So you could make the argument from the other end and go, well, what, what is too low? What I like to do is I like to go back to the, the principle that uh, engineering is calculated compromise. So when you talk tires, when you talk technical aspect like this on, on an engineered product, everything you do will affect some other aspect of something that you get from it or that you do with it. So what you're talking about when you talk about going above that recommended pressure is getting the tire to do something, but you're giving away something else. So let's talk from the other end of it, the low pressure. When people say, oh, I, you know, I drop my pressures when I go off road. Okay, great. When you reduce the tire pressure, you're trying to create a, an increased contact patch, an effective contact patch of the tire. But the moment that you start to reduce the tire pressure towards the edge of that optimum range, you are now creating a condition that is going to create other problems, which is things like rim roll. Um, you're going to start to see the sidewall roll over a lot. You're going to have the condition that creates a lot of pinch flats or bent rims. Uh, you're also going to see the tire wallow a lot, uh, especially if you do get up to higher speeds. So going back to that idea that the engineering is, is a calculated compromise, so is changes in setup. And this is that magic formula that you see supercross teams work towards every year this is what every time you change one aspect of something you you get something else changing on on the back end it's a push-pull effect and so you had mentioned at the start of the, the podcast that you aren't much for changing tire pressures me personally i'm very much the same way i would rather have a little bit more pressure in my tire and go cruising down the highway and have a nice stable long wearing tire and then go off road and compromise with my abilities than I would to try to constantly have to adjust my pressures to the conditions. Otherwise I'm doing more tire pressure adjustment than I am riding. Some people have no problem with stopping and changing that and getting that fine tune. But again, what is the actual net effect? And you mentioned the idea of an experiment. I think what I would recommend to people is try things, you know, create as if, if you're curious to see what the net effect is, go and create that environment, go in a, in a closed environment where you have an entire day to work on these things and make those adjustments and see what you get. See if you can have a friend assist you so that it's a blind test so they don't tell you. Having come from a racing background, I can tell you I've been blown away over the years by the amount of times that somebody in a racing environment could or could not tell the differences in setup based on say five PSI or four PSI or even a half a PSI for the really top level athletes. It's surprising what you don't or do notice in those conditions. And I would encourage people to go and try it. Go make those changes for yourself in a, in a controlled environment and see what you see what you sense from it. And then, of course, if you're the guy who keeps getting pinch flats, maybe consider going up in pressure a little bit. Things like that. that takes us exactly to the same thing I do when I'm doing training, which is everything has a trade-off. Whether I'm setting up suspension, whether I'm talking about the ergonomics of the motorcycle as far as setup goes... People want very straightforward answers. Do this. Oh, air down 15%. Put it at 35 PSI, whatever it is. Paul and I both, our answers so consistently frustrating people because we start off with, well, that depends. Because there's so many different factors that play into that. And I think you've nailed it spot on. That when mm -hmm. we're talking about air pressure, that's exactly the reality. And that's why it's so highly debated and such a controversial I think, topic within motorcycling. But since we want to stay into this sort of uh, this idea of controversy and see if we can put you out on the edge here, let's talk about tire sizing. 
because that's something else that comes out a lot. And, you know, certainly we have the choice of wider tires, narrower tires, taller tires, shorter tires, and there's a range within the motorcycles. In fact, some motorcycle manufacturers will offer more than one tire size as an OEM, you know, setup. I, I Mm -hmm. owned a, an Aprilia, it came with a 190 on it, but they also had a 180 listed as a factory size tire. And I, so I know there's variations on that. And I have a tendency to lean towards tires that are narrower, that are thinner. In my impression is that off-road, there are more advantages to narrower tires more frequently than there are for fat tires. But as we get into tire sizing, how is that affected? What should riders be looking for? Uh, what's too much? What's too little? Besides just what the tire says on the sidewall, because we know those aren't consistent either from one manufacturer to another. Well, in certain cases, they are. Uh, luckily for me, I work for you know your your, your veiled reference to Mitas uh, and and other European manufacturers. The the organization that I work for, they engineer tires to a standard called the ETRTO standard or European Tire and Rim Technical Organization standard. And it's basically in Europe, manufacturers have a standardized system to size tires to. The, I, I think the general idea there is interchangeability and consistency. It's not uncommon in our industry to see companies make claims to certain sizing that quite frankly doesn't match what would be considered a a standardized sizing system. A lot of reasons for that. Some have to do with marketing. Others have to do with how they interpret technical information. We could probably go down the rabbit hole on that entirely. But for us, very specifically, if you look at our catalog, there is a rim size spec for every given SKU that we offer. So if you look at any line in the catalog, there'll be a, a recommended rim size and that rim width matches up to a bunch of dimensional information that is true to life. And that is part of the standard. So luckily in our case, it's actually quite easy to interpret that information because they also offer, I guess you would call it a, a rim width option or, or, you know, variance. So there's a little bit of standardization in the modification side of it, not so much as what we maybe would use in real life. And that's got a lot to do with the differences in the regulations between Europe and North America. But you're asking a few different questions. The The first one that you mentioned was about the general use or, or of a width of tire. You know, is a, a narrower tire going to be better than a, on a wide tire? Again, we're going to use that idea of it depends on the situation. Here's a perfect example. One of our most popular tires is our 140 width hard enduro tire. And it's uh, usually used in the, the gummy, the double green compound that we have. The reason that that tire is effective is because it has a huge contact patch. Uh, It's used in Europe as an FIM spec tire because in Europe, they actually have to have shorter knobs on the rear tire. So I think that I'm not entirely sure how that all came about, but I think in general, the idea was when you limit the size of the knobs, the company had to develop a technique to get the same amount of traction. That's when you started seeing the proliferation of those 140 width rears and you'll see them on all of the European spec bikes, not just from our brand, from other manufacturers as well. And in those conditions, that's ideal. If you get into the Rocky Mountains and you're on that same hard enduro bike, there might be areas where a 110 width would be a, a better choice because it turns in better or because you do a lot of pivots. There's, there's different conditions that'll affect that. On an adventure bike, 
I think that's a very controversial thing because again, it's very specific to the conditions. You know, I, I don't see a lot of use in having a 150 or 170 rim on a KLX 650, but I also don't see that on a, my, I mean, my Tenere is a perfect example. I mean, you could probably get away with running a 120 on it if you ran a skinnier rim. So then the rim choice has as much to do with the tire choices as, as anything else. It will depend on personal preference. It really will. I have two 1200 GSs, one that's mostly stock and then one that is highly modified. And one of the modifications on that is a change in rim size. And that 1200 GS has a 150 or rim on the back that fits a 150. And on the front, it has a a 21 inch rim on it, which are certainly without a lot of debate considered far more ideal for strict off-road riding than the, the stock where it comes with a 170 tire on the back size tire and a 110 on the front and only a 19 in diameter but as you've mentioned everything has a compromise and one of the things that has pushed a lot of these bigger bikes to use bigger tires just has to do with how long that tire can last i mean if people think about it when they're going down the road if you're riding on a very small surface area all of that weight all of that horsepower all of the heat is going to a very small part of that tire and to make that tire last longer, you either need to have really hard rubber or it has to be really thick. If you can spread it out over a larger area, i.e. going from a 150 to a 170, since a GS is a touring bike that you can put the same tire on there, but you can have either softer rubber or you can have less thick of a tire. And of course, now you're talking about weight and, and all these other elements that go into a tire, there is always a trade-off. There's one thing for another as far as, as that goes. And when we look at the tire sizing, I guess the, the way I'd like to take this right now is unless we go through the extreme process of what I did, which is changing rim sizes, which also meant I had to change suspension so that the attitude, of the bike was correct and, and a bunch of other things to make it proper because it wasn't designed that way. Can a rider safely increase or decrease tire size from the the factory spec, you know, the recommendation. If it comes with a 150 and I go to the dealership and I want a narrower tire, it's a 140 going to be okay. If all they have on the shelf is a wider tire and I'm just trying to get out of there, how do they do that safely? And I know you work for a company, so you have to tow the company line. And I'm happy for that because that means you're not throwing us your opinion. What you're sharing is what is safe to say, what is not going to be just Jared's idea. I I think it's fine. So I I like the fact that you have to kind of toe that line some. So where is the limit on that? Where can people go? Can they can they get a taller tire? Can they go to a 14080 instead of a 15070? Uh, I think the answer is that there is an ex- there is always going to be an acceptable range of change. The limit is going to be very very hard to establish because it's very specific very specific. So you mentioned going essentially one profile size difference. That's not going to change. Uh, Actually going back to, I guess, jumping back to what you had said about what you need out of these tires when you go down the road, dissipating heat, footprint, all that. You also need to consider probably the most critical aspect of tire handling on road, which is the profile. I mean, obviously the load rating, but I mean, in terms of actual handling, it's the shape, the physical shape of the tire. And in almost every case where you get beyond what we would consider a reasonable limit, 
to that change. It's going to have to do with the physical shape, the profile of the tire itself. And so, yes, there's absolutely a range that's acceptable. Each manufacturer and each, even within the segment, within tire to tire, there will be a bit, a bit of a difference there. But manufacturer to manufacturer, there will be an acceptable range for that. And obviously, this isn't even towing the company line. I think it's common sense. If you want to go outside of that range, you really want to know, contact the manufacturers. Good manufacturers will give you advice that tells you what they've established is clearly known as to be safe, for example, in, in terms of the profile or, or the rim fitment. I think any of the reputable manufacturers have no problem saying that they can supply that information. But in terms of you know how much, it's, it's really hard to say. For me, I prefer to stay within the range of like one or two sizes different. So like if it came with a 150, you could probably go down to a 130. Probably can't go up to a 190 or 170 though. You, going up is going to be a lot harder in most cases than going down. But again, it is very specific and it depends on what you're trying to accomplish too. So if you are running a skinny rim, let's say, I, I, just because I can speak to this personally, you know, the stock rim on my tenere on the rear, they have a tendency to dent because it's such a wide rim. So again, that compromise is you've got this great handling on the road. It's, it handles wonderfully. You know, it's the stock tires work just fine as well. And, you know, I swapped onto a set of EO7s. Great. But if I wanted to really off-road that bike and that bike has the potential to do it, then I'd probably switch to a standard rear hoop, a standard 18-inch rear hoop off of my on one of the enduro bikes. So is it a 215? I think it is off the top of my head. I can't remember if, for sure if it's 215 or maybe even a 250 or maybe a 3-inch. For us, the you know when I say that we give reference, if you look at the recommended rim size for any given tire in our skew, skew line, the, the catalog will tell you what those ranges are. That's as, as far as I will stretch that in terms of telling what you can do. I've seen some crazy things done that worked, but you're never going to hear the manufacturers telling me it's a good idea. And it's usually because of handling. You know, if you change that profile too much, then you change all of the engineered aspects of that tire and you're really getting into an area of, we don't really know what it's going to do and usually isn't going to do what it should do. So let's see if we can squeeze one more topic in here about tires that is maybe more unique to adventure riding than almost any other segment I've seen out there. And that is a deliberate mix and match of tires. We won't even worry about different brands. We'll just stay within the same company. Mm -hmm. As an example, we know that the rear tires wear out very quickly. They can be very expensive. Also, depending on what the tread pattern is, on the front versus the back, you may want to have more traction off-road on the front than the back. And so commonly what I've seen with adventure riders specifically is taking a step more aggressive on the front tire than the rear, running more of a street block on the rear and uh, sort of an off-road knobby block up front. Is this something that is not recommended? I think the manufacturer statement is always going to be that you would not recommend going outside of the the range. So so obviously if we say, you know, uh 50-50 in the front, 50-50 in the rear, they're going to shy away in general from giving you a mix and match. In reality, that's not going to be a big problem if you are conscious of what you are giving up. So I would say to most people in North America that if you're honest about the type of riding you do, you can also be very clear about your intentions with changing up those tires. So for me personally, uh, you know, again, I mentioned the Tenere, it comes with a 21 inch front hoop. And so you don't have a huge contact patch. So 
on the road, no matter what I put on that thing, there's not going to be a terrible amount of traction, right? No matter what you do. So to me, it makes sense to go to a more aggressive front tire because what I'm compromising on road, I gain off road. You know, that reoccurring theme of calculated compromise. What am I giving away when I change something? In this case, I might run an EO7 on the rear because it's a fairly, you know, in, in really nasty rocks and stuff. You'll start to see the limit of a 50-50, but that tire does good for me right up until it starts to get real nasty. Even in the mud, it does just fine. But on the front, that little 21-inch hoop is going to support something with knobbies that's really going to make me happy off-road that I can probably just baby a little more on-road because I was going to baby it anyways. So the recommendation comes back to what are you actually physically using it for? If you're not really super aggressive, there's a lot of adventure bike riders that never go down a single track trail. For those guys, why would you ever suggest that they go to a knobby tire? Well, what you could tell them is if you go to the knobby because you're a little nervous off-road, you will gain something, but be conscious of the fact that it's going to wear faster. And if you're comfortable with that, it shouldn't be a big deal. But also be aware of the fact that when you're on road, it's going to vibrate a whole bunch and make a lot of road noise. And you're not going to be able to tuck it into the corners comfortably like you could if it was, say, a 70-30 style tire. And this is one of the reasons why the the EO7, and I have the EO7 Plus right now on my my standard GS, but that EO7 was such a wonderful tire to run with because it had an amazing compromise of off-road stability and traction and that rear off-road often performed much better than even knobby tires, in my opinion. Unless I got into the mud, like sticky mud, in which case there's still a limit. At some point, we're all stuck. <laughs> it's just, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of a fine line between, okay, I would still like more traction and it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. But it was also very quiet, very smooth when I was able to run that on the street. And I say was because getting a hold of them and getting them to fit on the bikes I have now is hard to find, or they just don't fit. They, they're not made for that, that big GS now. So I, that's why I'm using the EO7 plus, but like everything, those tires are a compromise and what made them so wonderful in my opinion, or still make them a wonderful tire is the fact that they are adequate. They're okay at everything. They have decent life. They, they work well on the street. I'm not going to go road racing with them. They work nice off road. I'm not going to go mudding with them. It was just one of those all arounders. And I think that's what we're looking at when we talk to the audience that's listening to this podcast. We're adventure riders. We're not 18 year olds on motocross bikes. We're not, some may do some track days here and there, but primarily we're a little more careful about what we do. We're a little more deliberate. We have very expensive motorcycles. We're not interested in braking and we want to be educated about the choices and decisions we make. And that's what this podcast is about. That's what the channel is about. That's what all the support that keeps this alive is all about and why people do support this podcast and the videos I produce because they want content that is well-researched, that's solid and is uninfluenced by those outside. I don't have any sponsorship. There's no benefit for me to talk to you other than I get to talk to a very educated person who knows their stuff, who can come from another perspective. And that that's what makes this wonderful. You mentioned my previous background before working in this position. I I worked in the design and and product development side of mechanical systems. So I designed drilling rigs and did all these other different things. I got into this business and worked for this company because as a rider, as a racer, I respected the product. I had enough time on the, the product to know what it was and how it worked and why it worked. And 
it's always made sense to me as a salesman to look at a potential sale as something that is an education opportunity. It's a lot easier for me professionally to tell you what you should choose and then let you pick for yourself. And when I say what you should choose in terms of not brand, but in in terms of picking the right product, I would much rather guide you towards something that is not something I'm selling if it's right for you. And to be fair, we have so many options. I can say that that's very, very rare, right? That's the little sales pitch side. But I would rather tell you what you should be doing in terms of making those choices than try to sell you what I have to sell. I think that that's a, a more organic approach and it makes more sense because there's so much misinformation out, out there. You can go on any Facebook page or, what, you know, there's a million different chat rooms and you'll go in there and you'll see how many people asking, what oil should I use? and What tire should I pick? Well, if you answered that every single time the same way and said, depends, then that's why that's such a good place to have that conversation because it really does depend. So as a, as a racer and as a rider, I agree with you. I, I, I prefer to give an unbiased opinion as a rider first and then jump in with the sales pitch. Uh, you mentioned the EO7, Z07 Pluses. That's a perfect example. Uh, the company developed the EO7 Plus to address a growth in that market. The fact that they were starting to put more horsepower, more control systems, ABS traction control, and, and quite frankly, more weight on those bikes. And so the original EO7 was never intended. It was not originally designed to handle some of the, the bigger, more powerful machines. And so the EO7 Plus was designed to address some of those considerations. And again, this this idea of calculated compromise. They said, okay, well, what would we want to do? When you have a system like a a complicated traction control system on a bike, uh, it's it's an expensive bike. You don't want to lay it down, but you want to run around on a semi-novy tire, then it's important to make that tire perform for that parameter. And so what they did was they softened up the rubber a little bit. And uh, keep in mind that the EO7s and EO7 Pluses are all interchangeable and they're all still 50-50 tires. Uh, we call the EO7 Plus a 60-40 because it's a subtle, it leans more in the subtleties, it leans more towards the road. But the idea was to give you a tire with a little more rounder profile, a little bit softer compound. Um, the blend itself was more conducive to performance in wetter conditions. I know the East Coast guys that ride a lot of roads in the rain, they said they, they love them. But Within those choices, we still offered the Dakar and the non-Dakar versions of both. So you have the EO7 and the EO7 Plus and both of those in the Dakar. Now the Dakar is a reinforced carcass and a more durable compound. I like to tell people you do not necessarily need the Dakar if you aren't actually using it for what it was intended for. So unless you're doing really, really high mileage rides or unless you really genuinely need an absurd amount of mileage on those tires before you replace them. Sometimes that's not necessarily the best pick. It's not uncommon for me to tell our our customers that maybe you should go with the non-Dakar and they say, why? Well, the non-Dakar being that it's a a slightly softer carcass is actually going to handle chop better. It's going to be a little more resilient. It's a little more supple. So it won't make as much road noise and things like that. It, It will handle a little bit better in low traction scenarios because it'll flex a little bit. Again, going back to the idea of air pressure, that's provided that you run a reasonable amount of air pressure in it. So all of those things kind of come together and give people a whole bunch of different options. But, you know, it's important as important for me as it is for you to try to get that that right information out there, you know, get rid of, dispel the disinformation and, and let people know so that they can make the educated decision for themselves really is what it comes down to. I think that's a fantastic place to to wrap this up in a great closing, the fact that there are so many 
considerations, so many variables, and often what our impressions are or what we think or what our buddies tell us is not necessarily what's going to be best for us or even just, hey, I want to buy the more expensive tire because it must be better. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the best choice or best tire for you. Jared, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on to the Around the Wheel podcast to talk with me and to share your knowledge, your experience, and your enthusiasm with all those listeners out there. I greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, we can only hope that this brings up enough questions that we can do round two. I'd, I'd love to hear what kind of feedback you get from customers. We're always in tune with what people are saying in the market. And uh, it's, it's great to have a good chat about uh, motorcycle stuff. Fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Around the Wheel. We appreciate you listening. Please share it with others if you enjoy the information. If you'd like to help keep this podcast going, it is supported, as I mentioned earlier, 100% by Patreon supporters. That's how we keep the hosting up and how we keep the equipment running so we can put it together. And if you can't afford to do that or that's not something you're interested in, by all means, please tune in every time there's a new one. Take the information, make yourself a better rider, a more educated rider. I just want you to have a better life and have more fun on the days that we have here on this planet. So thanks a lot for listening. And until next time, remember, smile while you ride because attitude matters.